Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People Podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Michael Cunningham, author of a new novel entitled Day. When the novel is beginning to turn into this and not that, when it's increasingly apparent that it's just not going to incorporate interstellar travel or the Crimean War. It happens every time I just completely lose faith in it. I feel like this is just nonsense. This isn't really about anything. I, if I don't care about these people, why would anyone else care about these people? But I've come to understand that for me, what's actually happening is the book in question is sort of shedding whatever little idea led me into it and taking on a life of its own. All right. That was Michael Cunningham. His new novel is called Day, available from Random House. Day is a pandemic novel, pretty explicitly. It's about a family in Brooklyn that is under pressure. Internal pressure at first, and then eventually a different kind of pressure. This book is about the people in this family. A very vivid and affecting and beautifully drawn cast of characters. Day is about their lives and their interiors, and it's about what happens to them when the external pressures of the pandemic are brought to bear on their lives. This is an elegantly structured and beautifully written new novel by Michael Cunningham, his first new novel in about a decade. 
Our conversation is coming up in just a couple of minutes. So a quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at Substack, bradlisty.substack.com. The newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of this show each week, and I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good and you want to hear from me in your inbox, go sign up over at Substack. Likewise, this program has a Patreon community for people who love the show, who want to support it, who want to get merchandise, a book club subscription, all that sort of stuff. Head on over to patreon.com slash other PPL pod if you are interested in joining. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, a new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lynn. In The Night Parade, Jamie Nakamura Lynn braids her experiences of mental illness, the death of her father, the grieving process, and other difficult topics, all driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lynn, available now from Mariner Books. The Night Parade is the official November pick of the Other People Book Club. If you want to sign up for the book club, head on over to otherppl.com. Okay, so my guest, once again, is Michael Cunningham. His new novel is called Day. It is available from Random House. Michael Cunningham is a novelist, a screenwriter, and an educator. His novel, The Hours, received the Penn Faulkner Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1999. He has taught at Columbia University and Brooklyn College, and he is currently a professor at Yale University. I am honored and very pleased to have Michael Cunningham here on this show for the first time, and I'm happy to share this conversation with all of you right now. So let's get to it. Here I am with Michael Cunningham, and his new novel, One More Time, is called Day. I was at least halfway through a different novel. You know, I'm, 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 I'm slow. Three, four, five years is, is, is pretty standard for me. And I was working away on that book when the pandemic roared in. And there was no way to insert the pandemic into that book without making it look like I had inserted the pandemic into that book. And it seemed unconscionable or whatever. Um, it, it, it seemed wrong to write a contemporary novel as if the pandemic wasn't happening. So I just put that one aside and, and started over. And this is that book. So it sounds like you were pretty far along in the other book. I was, I was, yeah, yeah. It was, um, I was sorry to let it go. And I yeah, let it go. I might, I might come back to it or, or I might not. But, you know, um, it's part of the deal. So the pandemic had that big of an effect on you creatively where you were like, I can't. 
I can't do this. I have to write about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just felt like writing a novel set in our time without mentioning the pandemic was going to be a little bit like setting a novel in London during World War II and not mentioning the Blitz. Like, what? So, yeah, yeah. Here is this book that looks like it took 10 years to write. It actually took more like two and a half years. It took, it, it, it took, it took the better part of 10 years to not finish that other book. But it could still potentially see the light of day. Yeah, it could, it could. We'll see. The funny thing about a novel is, you know, of course it moves at sort of right in the writing of it moves at sort of geological time. Um, but you're also, there is, there is a tick, a very slowly ticking clock with any novel and you kind of have to finish it before it starts to look like something you used to want to write. I, yeah. That, like, I feel like with every book, I mean, you could speak to this, you look at the books you've published in the past, enough time goes by you haven't looked at it how many writers sit around reading their old books i think once you're done you're glad to kind of have it in the rearview mirror but every once in a while you might pick it up and start reading it and that could be a strange experience like to see yourself on the page many years ago it's like a snapshot in time which is why i never pick up an old book <laughs> it's better probably better for your mental health not yeah to. yeah no no abs- absolutely but um yeah the well the pandemic to say affected everybody in the world feels a little mild um it certainly affected the creative process for me, and it also affected my my sense of what a novel set now really needs to contain. What do you think it does need to contain? Obviously, it needs to contain some r- response to the pandemic as a reality in our lives, but is there are there other things? Well, yeah, the tricky part is addressing the pandemic, acknowledging the pandemic, you know, kind of, kind of the way you would acknowledge Godzilla. And at the same time, keep the focus on the characters. Novels are about human beings. And so the question you find yourself asking yourself is, how do I deal with the pandemic without writing a pandemic novel? without letting it just so overwhelm the people that they that they vanish in the smoke and flames of it. Well, it's interesting creatively to note that even though this is very much, I guess what you would call a pandemic novel, the pandemic itself in the text is mentioned only indirectly. And I want to say that the words COVID, pandemic, and virus do not appear in this novel. Not, they do not. That is intentional. I mean, believe me, there are a lot of things in a novel that are unintentional or, 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 or subconsciously so, but yeah, I just feel that something that terrible is 
somehow even more terrible if you don't name it with the understanding that everyone is going to know what it is. Um, the, <clears throat> the Greeks never said aloud the name of the god of the underworld for fear, I guess, that, that they would attract his attention. Oh, yeah, what about, what about that guy? We should, he, should, he should be down here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there is, it's not an exact analogy, but there, but there is something about the unspoken, the almost, un, the, by implication, unspeakable that I think makes it that much more dreadful. So in terms of making that creative choice, which was, as you said, deliberate, was there any concern that future readers who did not live through the pandemic, for example, might have trouble orienting themselves? Like, um, did that occur to you? Yes, yeah, it, it, it did occur to me. I teach, uh, I teach incredibly bright students and we read a story, a short story, a great story by Alice Elliot Dark called In the Gloaming, which is about a mother who is sort of helping her son die. And the students were very moved by the story. They got it, but Alice Elliot Dark does not mention the word AIDS, and they didn't know what was wrong with him, which I don't think doesn't, doesn't speak ill of them, but it, but it, but it does speak to how quickly we forget. And I'll just take my chances on that one. You know, I, 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 I would imagine it'll be a long time before we forget about a virus that changed the lives of literally every person on the planet. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I think like it, it heightens. There's, there's a couple of different thoughts that come to mind. First of all, to what you just said earlier, when it's not named, it becomes in some ways more menacing. The monster becomes scarier in that way. Right, 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 right. right. But it also has the effect of taking the story out of time a little bit. Yes. And making it more timeless because the truth is that something disruptive, I mean, I think a, a, your average reader could discern that it was some kind of virus, or, you know, some sort yeah. of plague was spreading. And I think by not naming it and not specifying it, it might actually make the story more relatable to future generations. You know, a future reader should he or she pick it up. Ab absolutely, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I think by not naming it, you you sort of don't, well, you don't date it, though the book, the book is very specific about dates. And yeah, if we are still here in several hundred years, I, I, would, I would love to imagine that there won't be any more global catastrophes, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> might be a might be a heavy lift for humanity to sort that out. <laughs> let's 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 just say that I, I feel the human race should it should it survive will will connect with big terrible things that happen even even if they no longer know the word COVID or pandemic. 
So uh, along this same line, I want to talk about the pandemic as it relates to contemporary fiction, mm-hmm. which I read a ton of, you know, obviously for this show, I'm constantly talking to writers who are publishing books. And as I have noted more than once, I feel like the books that are publishing this year are sort of the first off of the assembly line yeah. or some of the first off the assembly line to have been written during the pandemic. We're kind of seeing a wave of these books right, right, right. where your novel stands out is in how it is very much about the pandemic and its effects in particular upon the lives of the characters in this family that you've created. I've trying to go back through the books that I've read in recent months. And I don't know if I have read one that deals, even though, you know, as we said, it's, it's kind of an indirect dealing. It is a pretty, in the, in the aggregate, it's a pretty direct head on mm-hmm, novel mm-hmm. about the pandemic. I think that distinguishes it. Not a lot of writers are going right at it. A lot of writers are writing during the pandemic and maybe reacting somehow in their fiction, like obliquely to the pandemic. But yeah. this book, you kind of went right at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, I also read a lot of contemporary fiction, but I have stayed away from books that involve the pandemic just because, because. Yeah. Um, I, I hear Ann Patchett's novel is pretty great. Yuri Steingart. I hear rumors. And, right. but, but, I, but, I, but I've, 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 I've sort of um, kept those books over there for now. Well, I mean, it's like once you've spent that long on a project dealing with this stuff, probably one of the last things you want to pick up to read. Nothing against these books, but, but that's when people when people ask me if I listen to literary podcasts, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I'm always doing a literary podcast, you know, there's always one in my head. So I totally get that. Yeah. And yeah. I want to I want to actually ask you a personal question just as a curiosity with respect to the pandemic, because as I was prepping for this conversation, uh, I read about your partner and the fact that he's a psychotherapist. I believe yeah. his name is Ken. Yeah. So, and you live in New York City or in Brooklyn? We live in Brooklyn. I am okay. you from Brooklyn now. Yeah. Okay. So high, high uh, population density. And a, yeah. I think a very, what's the word? Acute experience of the pandemic, particularly in those early months before we had, you know, before the medical community had a handle on it, obviously before the vaccines, but it was pretty grim in New York where you could hear the sirens and people were what ringing the bells and all that kind of stuff. It was very grim. Yeah. So in terms of the the question that I have is kind of twofold. It's like the experience of the pandemic for you, like those early days and how you were handling it. And then also having a live-in partner who is a psychotherapist, I have to believe he was doing good business, <laughs> not to be, not to be uh, cute about it, but you know what I'm saying? Like to have somebody in the house who works in the mental health field had to kind of add a dimension. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, Kenny, Kenny was working entirely online, but you know, one of the many benefits of being married to being a writer married to psychotherapist is um as i said to kenny when we 
were first going out a long, long time ago. So you are sort of trying to simultaneously solve and respect the mysteries of real people, and I'm trying to solve and respect the mysteries of invented people. But it's not that different, really. It's not, no. And I have to say that one of the many virtues of your new novel is how astute it is psychologically and how great it is at the level of character. Like you're excellent at making each of these characters in their own little ways round and complex and fully human. I really fell in love with this family. Oh, I'm glad and I have to, I guess we'll, we'll give a nod to, I know he's your first reader, right? So, he, and I'm yeah. sure he, he probably gives you very valuable feed, like feedback in that respect. He gives me extremely valuable feedback and you will not be surprised to hear that he's good with character. Mostly he has a fantastic eye for, oh, the sort of human mix of consistency and contradiction, if that makes any sense. Sure. I don't think this character would do this, but I see that they would do that, even even though it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, I have to believe he's probably seen it all, but it has developed like a keen sense of when somebody's going to sort of act out a character, which we all do. Which we all do. That's part of what makes us human. And that is part of what I think a writer needs to account for. You, you, you want, a, you want some, a person to be a palpable person and you want them to be capable of surprising you and readers and themselves. So in terms of the creative process for your book and getting it into form, uh, I read that the structure, like setting, setting your mind on the structure was the key to getting it going and to having it really lock in for you. And I feel like that, that, that like resonates with me. It doesn't always have to do with structure, but usually there's some aspect of the book, no matter what writer I'm talking with or whether it's my own work, that once that aspect gets sorted out, the other things sort of fall into place. Yeah, yeah. I, th Yes. Joan Didion once said, once you've written the first line of a novel, the rest just falls into place. She didn't mean that literally, but as I understand it, she meant that once you have a sort of voice and a point of view and the sort of, a sort of way of telling a story that's evident in the first line, the, the novel begins to arise out of the, the, the muck and the nowhere where, where nascent novels seem to live. Yeah, and for me, um, certainly with this book, not with every book, but yeah, it was all about the structure. Um, said one one day divided into three parts morning afternoon and evening and morning takes place before the pandemic afternoon takes place at the height of the pandemic and evening takes place in what i guess we're calling the post-pandemic with all respect to people who are still struggling with it um and that made it possible 
me to imagine writing a book that was about the pandemic and not not about the pandemic. I mean, I, I, I almost, I kind of visualized it as um, the pandemic is like a brick and the narrative is a piece of cord that runs through a hole in the brick and comes out the other side. Hmm. I think that's interesting and not uncommon for writers to find like a visual corollary for whatever story they're trying to tell, whether it's like, I'm thinking most recently of an author I spoke with who had like the, the butcher paper, you know, taped to the kitchen wall and was, right. you know, but like using post-it notes to build out the, yeah, the yeah, plot yeah. line. But that's yeah. sort of like put like kind of externalizing things a little bit, even if just imaginatively and making it somehow visual can help you wrap your brain around it. Whatever works, whatever makes it begin to feel palpable to you. And yeah, yeah, it, it's, you do whatever it takes. So for listeners who have not had a chance to read your book yet, I want to give like a brief overview of what the, what the story is here. And I will take a stab at it and then you can correct whatever I screw up. How does that sound? <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is the story of a family. You have Isabel Walker and Dan Byrne, who are a married couple. Their marriage is under strain. It's, it's sort of failing. It's in the beginning, at the beginning of the novel, this first, this first act, this first day, you're seeing that, that fraying sort of in its earlier stages. They have two children named Nathan and Violet, and they have a bit of an unconventional family structure, which is a recurring theme in your work. Yeah. Because Isabel's brother, Robbie, lives in the attic of their brownstone. Robbie is a gay man. He is a school teacher. He is my favorite character in the book. I think everybody's going to fall in love with Robbie. He is yeah. such the sweet heart of this book and a wonderful character, a wonderful character. And then you have Garth who is uh, Dan's brother. So there's Isabel and Dan. Dan has a brother. Dan is a sperm donor to a woman. So we have another unconventional sort of family structure happening where he has helped uh, a friend of his conceive and she has a little boy and they're a kind of family, but that's being mm -hmm. sorted out. Mm -hmm. And we follow these people, these characters through this, these, you know, what is it? I guess a year of change the pandemic, all the family pressure that comes to bear due to the pandemic and all the ways in which their lives change. Yeah. How's that as a summary? Is that I can't, I can't improve on that. Okay. <laughs> okay. But it is, uh, as I said, very much a story about unconventional family structure and the loves and the pressures and the discontents that happen in any family. And I think one of the things that is so psychologically astute about this novel is the way in which it portrays characters who live in close proximity to one another and who are under strain and how that strain was exacerbated by the pandemic. I cannot imagine there is an adult alive who does not know somebody whose relationship blew up <laughs> oh, yeah. because of the pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, like the pandemic was a crucible. It was an accelerant 
to any kind of strain in a relationship. And once it came in, you know, it, the, its forces were brought to bear upon people and people had to sort of surrender to it and lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. Became very as difficult. A, as a couple or a family, it either sort of cured you or killed you. I mean, some, I, I know people who came out all the stronger for it because they were so reliant on these other people in the house. And yeah, and we all know people who were just blasted apart by it. Yeah. Well, it's also in terms of the way that you're depicting like unconventional families, like one of the aspects of, of this part of the book for me that I loved the most was this kind of bromance, if I may use that term, yeah, <laughs> between Dan and Ravi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not seen this in a, in a work of fiction. And it's not to say that it doesn't exist somewhere, but it was very clever and human and new to me on the page because Dan is married to Isabel. Yeah. And Robbie is Dan's brother-in-law. And they're sort of in love with each other and, and not in a way that is subterranean. Right. Like it's right, sort right, of, right. this is the best part about it is that they sort of cop to it, you know, and Isabel sort of knows, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not some, it's not some scary secret. It's more just like, yeah, like we're really into each other. They have a lot of love for one another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I mean, I guess you could say there is some undercurrent of eroticism in any close relationship, but you know, it's, it's, it's not like, Dan needs to come out and marry Robbie. It, it's it's not really it's 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 as you say it's 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 about affection and broness and and real love, but it's not it's not about sex, right? But I, though I did, it, what it made me wonder as a reader is if somehow uh, Robbie's personality and sort of disposition were somehow transferred to Isabel. Like, I mm. think, do you know what I'm saying? It's like they were two pieces. Like, I think yeah, the, yeah. that there was a lot of great synergy between Dan and Robbie just as, as human beings, like their energy levels and mm -hmm. their, their human energy was like sort of simpatico in ways that Dan and Isabel's were obviously not. Yeah. So yeah. you, it was kind of like the three of them together worked in pieces, but as a marriage, it ultimately was sort of do, you know, doomed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think for Dan, Robbie is a version of Isabel who is easier to be with, easier to make happy, and maybe most crucial, not someone with whom he has to negotiate a marriage. So there is some, for Dan, I think there's some aspect of as real as their love for each other is, there's also some aspect of the chimera in Robbie. Mm -hmm. and, oh, wow, here's my wife. Um, but, but she's a bro. And, 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 <laughs> and, and we just seem to get along so, so effortlessly well. Well, and we should say for listeners, just to kind of get people up to speed that for a thumbnail of who Dan is, as we meet him in this novel, he is a guy who is approaching the age of 40, who is attempting to make a comeback as a rock musician and to sort of relive old glory. 
and he never really fully made it. He had a kind of a, a fleeting moment, but you know, he had one of these creative lives that did not fully, you know, hit the jackpot or whatever. And so that's where he's at in his life. And he's got kind of a arrested development it does. thing happening. Yeah, it does. So you have those dynamics at play. And I just want to drill down a little bit more into this notion of the unconventional family as it recurs across your body of work. Yeah, I'm yeah. wondering why this is such a big theme for you. Um, I think it's mainly because you may or may not write autobiographically, but you kind of write from what you know, you write from the cards you seem to have been dealt in your life. And um, I have now lived through and survived two pandemics. I'm hoping there won't be a third while I'm still here. Three's a charm, right? You know? Uh, yeah, yeah. But I was a lot younger during the AIDS epidemic. And, but I saw clearly demonstrated the formation of these family-like units because for a lot of men who were infected, there had to be a phone call. Mom and dad have to tell you two things. I'm gay and, and some parents rallied, but a lot of parents didn't. A lot of parents hung up the phone. And so your family was, you know, a, a disco bunny and a, and, a, and, a, and a couple of lesbian bikers and, and you know, exactly. That's not, it's not quite that, but you know what I mean. Um, sure. and, and I really saw firsthand that these makeshift families who were not always easy and not and didn't always get along but they we did the things we had been taught growing up that only your blood can will do we went to the hospital we arranged what we needed to arrange we shopped for the groceries we made sure the you the whole the whole thing and i felt like Those families, the people in those families, weren't appearing anywhere I knew. And I thought, well, I should write about this. I, I should, I, I've, 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 I've seen this firsthand. I've been part of this. And that sort of, um, that certainly got me started. On well, I was going to say, so you yourself have been a part of the kinds of families that you're describing and that you're writing about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, um, well, I was an act up, and I did, I did what a lot of people did, and and I saw real acts of heroism too. On the part of people who were generally disregarded by the larger world, and then it sort of stuck with me 
the whole notion of queer and unconventional families. I, I guess because well, not only are we just given to write what we're given to write, as far as I know, roughly half the families, certainly in America, are queer in some way. If we if we if we take the sort of um, sexual orientation thing out of it, you know, it's 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 single mothers raising five children from from two different fathers who are both gone. It's the list goes on and on and on. But it seems God bless every regular family with biological parents and their children, but they're they're becoming the minority. And with you know all praise and respect, there are there's a whole other kind of family, infinitely different kinds of families, coming up. Like ch- people, friends of the family that you choose, right? It's like those kinds of yeah family bonds. Family, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's 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 part a big part of what's what's happening for a lot of us. Well, it should be noted too. You mentioned it just, you know, you've been talking about it, but you mentioned it a a bit ago more explicitly that for gay people in particular who lived through the AIDS epidemic, COVID was not the first experience of this. And for as traumatic as the AIDS epidemic was for so many people, to have to live through COVID and to kind of go through that process again. It was different, but there were a lot of similarities. Had to be re-traumatizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was certainly a sense of, you're kidding, not again. And I think during the AIDS epidemic, pandemic, um, it was more possible for people to live their lives as if that wasn't happening. You don't know anyone who's HIV positive or has AIDS. It's happening over there. And during this during this pandemic, um, there's no over there. There's no other people to whom it's happening. And um, yeah, yeah, I think, I'm not sure if we who lived sort of actively through the AIDS epidemic were more traumatized than than anybody um if if for no other reason than you know here's a new wrinkle you you shouldn't you shouldn't be in contact with your friends you know we were a band um in act up we 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 didn't we didn't worry that we would infect each other um Unless, unless things got out of hand, um, so yeah, I I think when something like this happens, it probably traumatizes everybody. Um, whether you have been through something like this or not, it might be more traumatizing to, for people who've never experienced anything like this. Yeah, that's possible, and I think too as I listen to you talk and as I consider what we've lived through over the past several years, 
and as I consider your novel, that it's easy in the quote unquote aftermath of a pandemic. I know mm-hmm. that for many people, as you said, many of us are still grappling with it, but most, you know, in most respects, life has sort of moved on yeah. and uh, gotten back to quote unquote normal. And there are vaccines and there are treatments that are pretty effective in the general, in general yeah. for people who have COVID. So a lot fewer people are getting severely ill and dying. And the same could be said for HIV and AIDS in terms of the drug treatment. Obviously things have come a long way. And so to live on the other side, like medically and scientifically of these pandemics, it can be easy to sort of gloss over or forget about what it was like to live in that really intense like sliver of time you know, historically speaking, yeah. when the medical and scientific communities did <clears throat> not, when the medical and scientific communities did not know exactly how the virus operated or how it was transmitted. Yeah. And I was reading an interview, I think that you did with the New York times where you were like, remember when we were scared that we were going to get it from our mail, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wasn't that long ago. No. I mean, that's the thing is that it's like, that was the part of it that was the most psychologically disruptive and intense is yeah. when you're living in that space of not knowing yeah, yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is, Oh, I don't know if it's the scariest part, but it's certainly a candidate for the title scariest part. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, Oh, I was 20 something, um, very early in the epidemic. And, um, but I did know somebody who was already HIV positive um, way before there, there, was, there was any kind of medication for it. And um, we were saying goodnight. And as was always our custom, we kissed each other on the lips. Um, and I thought, oh, hmm, I wonder if I just got AIDS. Which, of course, you know, duh, but, but, at, but there, there's a period where we just had no idea. Right. And that was, uh, we're well out of that. Yeah. But that so, must have been like, what, for like a, a, a month, for a month or so, you were kind of wondering? Well, I, I you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was more than a month. Um, I couldn't say exactly how long, but, you know, it, 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 it took a while to really understand how AIDS was transmitted. You know, they, um, its original name was GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. Oh, wow. Okay. Because, like, you know, like two roommates who weren't having sex were getting it. Anyway. Um, yeah, that was then. And it's, and, and it's still now, but um, that was then. So I want to shift gears and I want to talk to you about uh, your fear and neuroses. <laughs> uh, I read as I was getting ready for this conversation that you have a fear that your books are boring. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that story. The journalist was fantastic. Um, 
you know, you talk for a couple of hours and you talk about a lot of things and you have no idea what the focus of the story is going to be. And, you know, I'm, I'm really fine with it, but at some point, so what, what would you say your biggest demon is? And I thought, well, you know, gluttony, lust, avarice, there's a whole list. <laughs> yeah, where do I begin? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's true. Um, I, I probably have a greater than average thing as I'm writing that boring no one wants to read about this um but it's it's not it's 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 not the kind of impediment it might have sounded like in the 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 time story it's, it's more it's more that that little that little entity that sits on your shoulder and whispers unproductive things into your ear okay okay and i'm glad you say it might it's not the kind of impediment that it might have seemed because that was not the way that i took it and this might have to do with the fact that I have similar neuroses <laughs> and I'm a writer. I think the fact that I sit down and try to write as well, this, this spoke to me very much. And it, it also spoke to me as a reader because what I would argue to you, and you probably wouldn't argue with me, probably agree, is that even though that can, can be in some instances an impediment, it might cause you to abandon a day's work or even a project too soon or something like that. Yeah. To have that particular thing where you are concerned that the writing on the page is boring or doesn't need to be said, I think that actually, in many instances, serves the work and serves the reader. And it's one of the reasons why this book, I tore through. Yeah. I yeah. wish I kind of wish more writers were worried that their books were boring. <laughs> more writers. Should, I'm not going to name names, but more no. writers more worried about being boring. Um, and this is actually really great to hear because I, I I did hear back from some writer friends that they were glad to see someone sort of speak frankly about. I wouldn't call it a little thing, but the the you know the the. The things that, that torment you or, or bother you or threaten to upset the proverbial apple, apple cart that are not necessarily um, your heroin addiction or your failing marriage, though I do not in any way discount the attractions of heroin addictions. And <laughs> I hear it's wonderful in, in moments. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's an interesting and it's a delicate balance between having kind of like a healthy self-critic and an unhealthy self-critic. Absolutely. And I think we've all had moments creatively, if we've been at this long enough, where the unhealthy part of it gets the better of us, right? Where we we shut it down or we denigrate a work to death to the point where we can't even look at it anymore. Do you feel with the benefit of hindsight that you lost what might have been very good books because of it? Has it ever been so intense for you mm. that you think you might have abandoned a project that maybe I could have salvaged or something like that? You know, I've, I haven't yet abandoned a novel. What does happen, and I've come to expect it, is 
when I'm a certain ways in, um, oh, closing in on the hundredth page or less, when the novel is beginning to turn into this and not that, when it's increasingly apparent that it's just not going to incorporate interstellar travel or the Crimean War. Um, <laughs> I, I, it happens every time. I just completely lose faith in it. I feel like this is just nonsense. This isn't really about anything. I, if I don't care about these people, why would anyone else care about these people? But I've come to understand that for me, what's actually happening is the book in question is sort of shedding whatever little idea led me into it and taking on a life of its own. And I have to get through a few weeks of just working in the face of my conviction that this was all a big mistake. Right. And then it kind of picks up again and it turns out I, I, I always feel like it's a good sign um, if the book or story you finally write is not quite the book you set out to write. Because that means it's taken on a life of its own. And that means it's, it's gone somewhere that you weren't expecting. You know, Flannery, Flannery O'Connor said... How can there be surprises for the reader if there haven't been any for the writer? Okay. I'm I'm on board with that. All right. Yeah. Keeps yeah. No. Interesting. And Sunday. I think that uh, I think that hopefully over time we get better at dealing with those periods of resistance and uncertainty. This is what I tell myself anyway. Has that been the case for you? Because I it can be really destabilizing, and it can sound sort of. To the non-writers among us, you know, you, st you start to try to relate something like this to somebody who doesn't try to write books for a living or for fun yeah. or whatever it is. And they can just be like, what? But it is really emotionally <laughs> unsettling to be 100 pages into a book and to suddenly have it kind of leave you. It, you have so much invested in these projects. And so a question that I have is like, have you gotten, has it gotten easier for you over time from book to book? when you arrive at that period of kind of disunity to just accept it and get patient? Um, I would say more like it's gotten differently difficult. Um, if I <laughs> have moved from an early sense of total fraudulence, um, I can't do this. What would make me think I could do this? Yeah, I guess you could say same crazy worry, higher stakes. Like, this isn't Tolstoy. This isn't Virginia Woolf. So, you know, you can, you can, you can find ways to torture yourself no matter what. <laughs> In brand new ways, right? <laughs> always, 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 always new ways. And I think really the mystery at the heart of this is why some of us just keep doing it anyway. And that's a real mystery to me. I mean, I, I've had friends, I've had some students who were clearly seriously gifted. And for one reason or another, they came to their senses. You know, and fine, you don't know, nobody needs to be a writer, 
but I'm aware of the fact that I have a slightly odd sort of endless sense of determination, even when I think, oh man, you know, it's the desert and there's nothing in sight and I don't have a map. But hey, let's write another sentence. Let's see what happens. Yeah, you can't quit. I don't know where, the, I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, I don't either. I think I've, it always makes me think of that, Lori Moore. I think it's a story where she's like, if you want to find out if you're a writer, like try to do anything else. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you still can't stop writing, then you, yeah. know, you know you're doomed, you know, yeah. but that's, that's yeah. it. You just can't quit. You can't quit. And you don't. And you go on. Yeah. I just want to be sure to mention as well the fact that I hope for you too, I hope for all of us, there are days when you just feel fantastic about it. That you are conjuring people and worlds and that you, and that that was a really beautiful sentence. Um, just wanted to throw that in. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because, you know, it, it's, it's not just a question of, of why do we submit ourselves to endless suffering. It's also about how we get through the difficult periods to get back to that sense that, you know, I can, I can do, I can play the piano and, and it sounds okay. It sounds okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the loveliest part. I think it's very, it's just a, it, it, it's a very humbling thing to do. It brings a lot of humility if you stick with it long enough. And as you were talking, I was thinking to myself about those days I have where I, I'm like, this is going so well. This is really a great writing day. And then I will pick it up again the next day and reread it and be like, this sucks. <laughs> and vice, but, but also, and vice versa, where I'll have a day where I feel like I'm struggling and I'll have kind of a sour feeling about it. But then the next day I'll read it and I'll be like, actually. Yeah. So. Same, same, same. There are days when I can barely squeeze out two bad sentences, and there are days when I feel like, I could do this with my elbows. I, I could I could have another computer do writing another novel at the same time. And a month or so later, I can't tell the lines from the bad day from the lines from the good day. There you go. It's like access is, the Bombay door is wider open some days than others. And... You mentioned Virginia Woolf, who is often mentioned in conjunction with you. There's a, a symbiosis between her work and yours, and I know she's been an inspiration for you, and her presence has sort of uh, looms large in your work. And yeah, yeah. this novel of yours, Day, is, I think it's fair to characterize it as a character study. This is not a super heavily plotty novel with uh, the Crimean War and interstellar travel, as you said earlier. <laughs> Those will be in the next one. Yeah, right, right, right. But this is a beautifully observed, character-driven novel of the kinds of little moments, little tiny defining moments in a person's life that I believe Virginia Woolf referred to as moments of being. The being, yeah. And that, I feel, is right at the heart of the project of day is to paint for readers on the page, these little moments of being in the lives of this family. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. And can you just, I just love to hear you talk a little bit about 
Virginia Woolf's influence. Uh, this, this idea, I'm going to quote you, uh, because I, th- I thought it was such a great way to put it, where you say, I do have to give credit to Virginia for helping me understand that a novel can have real scope without being physically large and without spanning a great deal of time, that there is meaning at the level of the cosmos, but there's also meaning at the subatomic level. Yeah, yeah. And this is a novel day that is mostly subatomic. That's exactly right. And yeah, that is one of the things that makes me most grateful to Virginia Woolf. Exactly that, that she came along and insisted that in fiction, as you know, in life, um, scale is relative. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be physically large to be large. Thank you, Virginia, for that. Well, and the other thing that occurs to me as I, as I think about your book and these characters and these quote unquote moments of being is how in any human life, so many such moments take place internally. So much of our experience is not, not relational. It's not, it doesn't happen with other people around. It doesn't happen in a conversation. It happens in our skulls, uh, in our, you know, the, the operas that unfold in the minds of people as we do battle with ourselves internally. Like this book brings that sort of uh, human experience into high relief. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, um, I've always disliked the phrase "stream of consciousness." I don't want to. I don't want to read a, a stream of consciousness story with its implications <laughs> that that. The kind of endless turnings of anyone's interior is is going to be interesting, um, and that's not what what she did. She just she just didn't stop at the surface of people, but she had a laser eye for our interiors and how they how we are not only created from the outside in but from the inside out. It's not stream of consciousness. It's something. It's something I don't even have a name for. Yeah, that's interesting. How do you develop a laser eye? I guess maybe you can't develop it. It's just something you have to see people's interiors. Or I'll, I'm thinking out loud here. Maybe the reason you're really good at it is because you're someone who spends a lot of time looking inward and observing his own inner processes. Maybe if you get good at seeing yourself, you get good at seeing others. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think um, I tried to be a painter before I tried to be a writer. And one of the things that was pretty clear in painting is your arms moves across the canvas in a certain way. You have a scale that is seems to be innate you are a small physically small painter or you are a large painter and if you are a, if your arm wants to go and you try to spin a small canvas it's going to feel a little claustrophobic it's, it's just it's just not and I, I don't i don't think it's i don't think we can really 
define it. We can just observe it. And um, I think as writers, some we, some of it, some of our arms swing one way, and some of our arms swing the other way, or in between. Like I, um, I think about writing a multi generational saga, and think. Mm, I love them when other people write them, but I just, that's just not what I feel I'm here to do. You're, you're somebody working on a smaller canvas. Is that right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, 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 yes, yes. I, I, well, we've essentially said this at least once. Um, I hope, with certain intensity. I mean, like, like we don't necessarily prefer some like giant painting of a shipwreck by Jericho to a Vermeer. Right. But we're glad that we have them both. I was going to say, it's a good point. I have a friend who's an artist and he works in miniature or like in, you know, these small pieces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I have been contemplating reaching out to him and being like, you should do a big canvas of one of these. But now I'm not so sure I will. Because <laughs> maybe that's just, because I mean, part of the, what makes them so great is how detailed they are and how, yeah, yeah. you know, how careful they are. That might be the best format for that particular kind of work and for him. So maybe it's better to just leave it be. Him, but I have a feeling he, well, we never met. I have a feeling he would know. Right. Well, I want to talk to you about Instagram. Sure. I, I can't talk about this novel without talking about it because here again, there is a, something that is depicted on the page that feels really fresh and something like I haven't quite seen before is this storytelling interplay between Isabel and Robbie vis-a-vis uh, -vis this fictional character that they've created on Instagram. I guess there are people who do this. I'm sure there are. Maybe this is a whole thing and I just don't know. Yeah, I, I made it up, but I'm sure there must be people doing it. Yeah, but so they have a character named Wolf who has like a pretty decent following on Instagram where they're basically creating a life, posting photos, writing these captions, taking him on vacation, which becomes, I think, more poignant and maybe even more fun and affecting during the pandemic to have this kind of you know, person to live through, you know, and I'm just wondering where that came from. Have you ever done this on, on Instagram? I have not, but I'm really aware of, um, the fact that you could, that you could invent a person using other people's photographs. You could sort of patch piece together a, a person. Um, I, love Instagram for all kinds of reasons, in, in, including the fact that you just see the ordinary details of people's lives, which I, you know, you don't get to, you know, you don't, you don't get to see the pie somebody just made in Wisconsin. And I know some people, <laughs> I sort of draw the line of pet pictures, but, um, Anyway, yes, I, I kind of love that about it. And what actually Robbie starts it, um, and then Isabel joins in this 
invented character which, who Robbie has put together using photographs post, posted by other people um, is not exactly like a superhero. What he is, and Robbie isn't exactly conscious of this, but what he is, is how to put this, a heightened version of Robbie himself. You know, he is the Robbie who went to medical school. He is the Robbie who effortlessly has one boyfriend after another. He is that, he is just, for Robbie in a sense, he's the embodiment of, I think, something that many of us feel, uh, that people out there are just having a better time than we are. You know, they're going to better parties, they're, they're, they're getting better sex, and um, that's really who this person is, or, or, or begins to be, and then, and then he begins to have his own story and to take on his own life. But initially it was Robbie sort of imagining himself with the lights turned up a little brighter and the volume a little higher. That sounds like Instagram, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a cure, it's, a, it's curated, it's curated. You get these details, but you're always getting curated, chosen details. Right. right and right, right. maybe the more uncareful people on Instagram are the more fascinating human subjects to follow. Uh, but even, you know, it can be fascinating either way when it's like, yeah, well, I can either way. either way. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, I like the whole gamut, but I got to say reading about Robbie and Isabel and this fictional wolf on Instagram, it made me think like this would be actually kind of fun to create a life. Like that's almost a form of art. It's a little bit like a Frankenstein-y activity, <laughs> you know, yeah, but it's, it's collage yeah, right. art. It's, co I mean, you could argue that it is collage art to be creating a human life on social media using gathered photos from various different accounts. I don't know if there would be any kind of legal ramifications, but it seems yeah. to me like, it seems to me like fairly innocent fun, as long as you don't create like a cult leader or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, it's funny. I don't remember if this made it into the final version or or not. But yeah, Robbie wonders about that. Is this sort of like, am I like Dr. Frankenstein? Am I creating some sort of monster? But then sort of tells himself, what harm is it doing? It's like Frankenstein if Frankenstein went on really cool vacations. That's exactly. <laughs> if Frankenstein was really hot, Cabo <laughs> right. in the winters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just like a killer, like lantern jaw, and like uh -huh. effortlessly fit the whole uh -huh. thing, you know. But it's that alternative Frankenstein. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, uh, last like big thing that I want to touch upon is a kind of like a big picture career question because mm -hmm. I feel like like a writer like you, you've sort of been to the mountaintop in the world of literary fiction. You won the Pulitzer Prize. You've had your book made into a, like a great movie that won Academy Awards. Like I know you probably have a much more human telling of that experience, but for people, especially at the dawn of their careers, they look up and they think that's, that's it. That's the thing that you want to have happen. And it happened for you. 
But I also have read that in particular, like after the hours was published and had its success and you won the Pulitzer, that it occasioned a kind of dark night of the soul, which isn't an uncommon story for somebody who kind of realizes their dream. But I think it's useful to talk to 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 hear you you know to hear you talk about it because so many people who listen to this show are writers. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear you just talk a little bit about that experience and what you learned from it. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I when they announced the Pulitzer, I I was happy for about three days and depressed for about six months. Um. And. I didn't understand it. I'm not sure if I understand it yet, but it had something to do with some weird objection to the recognition, which is what you always wanted. I don't know, some kind of shame. Well, and even while I be coy about this, something about sort of finally seeming to have won the Oedipal battle with my father and feeling ambiguous about that. It was weird. It was weird. And I got, I finally got out of it. Um, well, I don't, I don't know if I should mention names, but um, the, the other, the person I know who had a similar reaction to getting the Pulitzer was um, Jennifer Egan. I said, oh yeah, I was depressed. I thought I felt like I, I was just being exposed as a fraud. Um, when Michael Chabon got it, I, I called him up and said, look, I don't want to plant any ideas, but if you feel if you find that you're feeling less than happy about this, you can give me a call. We can talk. Why would I be unhappy? I just won a huge prize. And I'll, God bless you, Michael Chabon. Paragon <laughs> of mental health. <laughs> this is how I have become known as the as as the miniature poodle of literature. Um, oh. I've heard, I've actually heard that story. I, w- I was speaking to uh, Andrew Sean Greer, and he was mm. telling me about how when the Pulitzer is announced, past winners will reach out to the new recipient, which I think is kind of a lovely tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you hear different things. And I want to say he was telling me about Chabon being like, it's great. <laughs> you know, you just won the Pulitzer. <laughs> but I can also, I can also see how it would be, it could be destabilizing. It could be like, whoa, that's a big thing to happen. And it's very mathematically unlikely. And then trying to process it and trying to sort of figure out where to go next or what it means. I can see how that could be difficult. Up from the bottom of the lake, you know, do I deserve this? What you know, it's crazy, but it's but it's human. No, I'm I'm Andy Greer and I are actually good friends. And um, when I heard about it, we talked, and you know, all I remember saying really is, to the best of your ability, try to skip right over the question: Do I deserve this? Just skip over that one. <laughs> delete <laughs> and get on to the next one it's either like nobody really deserves it or anybody who works reasonably hard and is and you know what i'm saying like it's an impossible yeah, question yeah. to answer 
Yeah, yeah. Here's a a, a, a funny story that kind of what's a funny story. Um, I, I I teach a writing workshop undergraduates, and at the beginning of every class, we kind of go around and introduce ourselves, and I say, okay, now we're going to go around, and I'd like each of us to tell the others in the group what in your work you feel you most want to focus on, what you feel like you want to sort of bring up, and I want you to tell the group something you think you're good at. And they mostly find that second question almost impossible. <laughs> it's not surprising. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's 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 writer shame. Um, who knew? What do you think you're good at as a writer? Do you have a strong suit that you? Oh can God, I can, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, see, it is a hard question to answer. I, I I feel like I'm good at sentences. I feel um, I frankly agree with you that I seem to have a pretty good eye for the nuances of human life and human behavior. And I feel like, ooh, it's going to sound funny to say I feel like I'm doing the very best I can. I suppose every writer is, but um, I think after the very surprising success of the hours I made a conscious effort not to write that book again, you know, and, um, and sure enough, a couple of them just disappeared. Um, but that's, I think, again, I think that's actually more the norm, especially in the, the modern environment where yeah. it's so unlikely for a book, you know, it's so there's so much noise in the culture and then a book catches a wave what are the odds that it's going to happen more than once? Right. Yeah, you, I know, I know, I know, I know. So I think, I think you actually, you clearly, because you decided not to try to repeat it, which I think is wise, but you, you knew it going in. You, you try to write a book after something like the hours. It's kind of loaded, right? Well, <laughs> the, yeah. I mean, I, I think that was, that was another thing that sort of put me into that weird post Pulitzer tailspin. Well, so, is it just downhill from here? Is this is this is this the culmination? And maybe it is. You know, once once you're once you're once you're out of your depths of depression, you say, "Hey, what if you were to shut up and be grateful about the fact that even one book of yours broke through and is still being talked about twenty five years later?" Right. Consider just getting over it, Mary. And getting to work, regardless. Yeah, getting, getting back to work. Getting back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I lied. I have one last question. Right. And it just has to do with Francis Cody, to whom this book is dedicated. Yeah. 
And I was reading in the acknowledgments, Francis is your agent. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I would just like to hear you talk about your relationship with your agent, because if you, you, it must be an affectionate relationship if you dedicated a novel. So why the dedication and what role has Francis Cody played in your creative life? You know, I have known Frances for a long, long time. She was an editor before she became an agent, and she sort of co-edited my novels when I was at, at Farrar Strauss and Giroux. I came to really depend on her as a reader. She is a great friend. Um, and a great reader and a great agent. Don't don't let me go on and on. But I think by the way, if she's listening to this right now, she's like, no, please continue. Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to elaborate. <laughs> no, no, no. She's no, she's English. She has she has trouble with too much praise. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I just I don't know. Well, I like I love acknowledgments and I I love to see when somebody acknowledges, I know what a critical role, especially, I mean, increasingly, it seems like editorially agents play in writers' lives. It's, it's creatively intimate. And they don't get recognized. Right. Um, your editor, your agent, your friends who told you to cut the second half of that chapter, they don't get, they, they're not, they're, they're no longer part of the picture. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, and I sort of write, I mean, I write for a few people, Kenny, two of my friends, and very much for Frances, because she gets it. She gets the joke, she gets the joke underneath the joke, right? Um, and yeah, and this one is for her. Well, it's an elegantly structured, beautifully observed, and wonderfully paced novel that does not feel like it has wasted motion in it. I admired it as I was reading it. It feels like you did the work, and I am grateful to you for spending some time talking with me about it. I know you are busy, so thank you. No, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. Okay, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Michael Cunningham, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of the new novel, Day, available now from Random House. You can find Michael Cunningham on the internet over at Instagram. That is where I believe he lives online. Once again, the new book is called Day. It is a beautiful novel. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can sign up for my weekly email newsletter over at Substack, bradlisty.substack.com. And you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a minute and you want to do me a favor, please rate this show wherever you listen. Give it a rating, write a review. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. Finally, if you would like to read my latest novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so check it out if you so desire. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. 
All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be a flashback episode where I dig into the other people archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Lexi Freeman. She has a new novel out on Catapult. It is called The Book of Ein, a very funny and wicked smart satire. I had a great time talking with Lexi Freeman. That is coming up on Sunday, so stay tuned.